Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. Welcome back from hell. It was hell, but I'm back. <laughs> How are you feeling? I feel amazing. I've never felt more powerful in my whole life. Okay, great. Well, good way to start the show. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump may be building a wall, but today we at Literary Friction are throwing open our doors and letting the masses in, at least metaphorically. Yes, it's a show about immigrants and how they get the job done. Do you know what that's a reference from? No. It's Hamilton the Musical. Oh, sorry. Of course, of course <laughs> I had to throw it in. Um, from Vladimir Nabokov to Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. As usual, our theme is inspired by our guest today, Julianne Pacheco, whose debut book, The Lucky Ones, is a collection of linked short stories set in Colombia and New York. Octavia, do you want to introduce Julianne, who's sitting here with us? Hi. Hi. Hi, Julianne. Yeah, I'm going to embarrass you now by reading how great you are. Wonderful. (laughs) Carrie, uh, Carrie. So Carrie, Julianne Pacheco grew up in Cali, Colombia, and lived there until she was 18. She's currently completing a PhD in creative writing at the University of East Anglia in England. And her story, Honey Bunny, appeared in The New Yorker. And two of her stories have been anthologized in Best British Short Stories 2015. So uh, pretty, pretty great. Yes, great. Uh, We'll be interviewing Julianne, then talking more generally about immigration and literature, and then finally giving our book recommendations. So please invade our borders for the next hour on literary friction. Be careful what you wish for, Carrie. Yeah, I mean, it's quite... When I wrote that, I was like... Oh, it's we'll, too we'll late now. We'll keep it in. Okay. Julianne, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to read a whole story, I think. So it might be a bit longer than our usual readings, but I'll I think it's worth it. I'll actually be reading an excerpt from oh, a very okay. long story. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I think it'll be relatively self-contained. Okay, great. We'll see. Okay, so um, can you just tell us which story it is? Yeah, so I'm going to be reading about 10 minutes from a story called Lemon Pie, which is a story that's based on... Um, a real-life incident that happened in Colombia, which is where I grew up. And um, what's interesting about the incident that it's based on, because since the story's about a hostage who's held in a jungle for many years, is he went on to write a memoir about his experiences, and then that memoir got turned into a book starring Russell Crowe and Meg Ryan, and that's the movie where they had their affair. And like her marriage with Dennis Quaid ended. Scandalous. So, yeah, so I like thinking that this story has like a vague link to the dissolution of Meg Ryan's marriage, no matter how <laughs> random. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not really a part of the story, but um, but we'll have it in our minds. It will yeah, be a subtext for sure. What's the movie called? Just Proof of Life. Uh, oh, I've seen that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's set in sort of a nameless South American co- country that's supposed to be Colombian. Um, that's supposed to be Colombia. Great. Take it away. So, So this is called Lemon Pie. Something is going to happen today. He just knows it. Call it a hunch, a gut sense. But he can't think about it. Not right now. Not with class about to begin. Students lined up neatly before him on the forest floor, sitting calmly, expectantly, the same way they do every morning. Dark tapestries of ants marching steadily over them, salamanders scampering through the surrounding fern leaves and scattering tiny drops of water, waiting patiently in place, the same way they've waited every morning for the past five years, eight months, two weeks, and five days. Today counts, even though it's still unfolding, even though it technically hasn't happened yet. Today always counts. The students are waiting for him to begin, same time, 9 a.m. on the dot, an hour and a half after breakfast, same place, 
Sandy Beach on the riverside, within sight of the armed guard on duty. Today, it's Cesar, who's currently struggling with the solar panels to recharge his clunky cellular phone. Five days a week. Here they are. And good morning to you too, he says to the vine-covered tree, raising his voice to be heard over the screeching chorus of crickets and birds. Oh no, late again, he says, to the flattened out leaves on the ground, green and brown and yellow, chosen deliberately by him for maximum diversity in terms of their size, shape, and texture. How embarrassing for you. Ah, he says, to the row of sticks and branches, covered in scratchy gray lichens and powdery green moss. Wonderful to see you. I'm so glad you're feeling better. That flu has really been making the rounds, hasn't it? Everybody, make sure you grab some hand sanitizer before we break for lunch, okay? Everybody nods, attentive, focused, the same way they always are, hanging on to his every word. He begins the same way he does every morning, Peace fingers pressed against his lower lip, chest out, back straight, standing steady as a general. The students wait with bated breath. The fern rustles slightly in the wind. A row of smooth river stones keep the leaves pressed against the ground. He says, Hamlet, here we go. Their homework was to read act one, up to the part where Horatio informs Hamlet of his father's nightly patrols. My father. Methinks I see my father. He trudges back and forth on the sand. What's interesting about Hamlet saying this? One of the stones volunteers that it's ironic that Hamlet says this. In my mind's eye, Horatio, without realizing that Horatio really has seen his father. Good. Good comment. The yellow leaf thinks that, do not mock me, fellow student, I think it was to see my mother's wedding, was a pretty sick burn. Yes, what an image, the funeral meets on the table, barely grown cold, that Hamlet, such a snarky little dude. The twigs giggle at his use of the word dude, but he lets them get away with it, even offers them the flicker of a grin. They all enjoy it, he knows they do. His undeniable gringoness, his casual teaching lingo, his speck of Southern California lighting up this corner of the Amazon jungle like a tiny golden flashlight in an ocean of green. So a big theme we're gonna see in the next couple of weeks is the theme of Hamlet's madness, his antic disposition, as he calls it. He scratches the insect bites on his arm. That's what makes the fact that Horatio sees the ghost particularly interesting. Can you genuinely be crazy if someone's having the same hallucination as you? This is by far the biggest pleasure of teaching Hamlet. How easy it is to remember direct quotes. At night, when he's locked up in the shed, he tries to remember as many as he can, writing them down in his notebook in whatever order they come to him, so that Hamlet's mournful oration for Ophelia, cat will mew and dog will have his day, is written alongside the pipe speech, you cannot play upon me, which in turn is scrawled beneath the near entirety of to be or not to be. That is the question. He has it almost perfectly memorized. It's only after what dreams may come that it gets a little fuzzy. So many memorable lines. The joy of using words straight from the source material. He learned his lesson from the Scarlet Letter, which he taught for his first class a year and a half ago, when he was just starting out and didn't know any better. He gave up after the opening chapter, which was all he could remember. Hester Prynne represents purity. That's basically all you need to know. 
As I lay dying, now that wasn't too bad either, not with those occasional gorgeous gems. Mrs. Dalloway, that definitely had its moments too. Life, London, this moment of June. But Hamlet, this is what he's been waiting for all fall semester, writing out as many quotes as he can by candlelight at night in the teensiest, tiniest handwriting possible as the watchman's flashlight shines through the cracked shed door during the bi-hourly checks. This is what they've been building up to, this moment. So, he says to the fern, the size of an armchair, seems, madame? Nay, it is. I know not seems. Oh, that this too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew, he says to the wide-eyed tree, who's been trying to hold back laughter all morning and will likely, likely giggle later with the twigs during lunch break. He keeps going, voice steady. How wary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seems to me all the uses of this world. Fie on it. Tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. He makes a mental note to rearrange the desks. The fern and twigs are getting way too clicky, sitting next to each other all the time like that. It'll be good to shake things up a bit, make them interact with different social groups, keep them on their toes. Pay attention, he says sharply to the river stones, who are getting distracted by a shiny black beetle crawling across the sand, to the motifs of rank and grossness. This kind of language will keep popping up again and again. Things rotting, not being right. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Some of you might even want to consider it as a potential essay topic. Yes, there will be essays, he says, voice rising over the chorus of moans from the leaves who are inevitably the most inclined to complain. We'll get to those next class. Any other questions? He stands there, waiting, but nobody has anything to say. Even the branches overhead are silent, barely rustling in the faintest of breezes. At times like this, it's hard not to let the camera zoom out, see what it really looks like. A row of sticks and stones on the ground, twigs and leaves, painstakingly arranged to look neat and ordered. An emaciated man, white spots on his nails, brittle teeth, sunken cheekbones like thumbprints in clay, pacing by the river, waving his arms around, ranting and rambling to thin air. A person might think that there was something wrong seeing somebody behave like that. A person? might even be worried. All right, he says, and this time it's hard to keep his voice from trembling. Have a great lunch. Thank you, Julian. That was so great. Thank you. Um, and I love the idea of this being inspired by a true life story, although obviously mm. there, there are elements of sort of fantasy in there and you're playing around with what is real and what isn't real. So can you talk a bit about the genesis of this story? Definitely. Well, like I was saying earlier, the story was inspired by a number of different sources, like specifically memoirs written by people who'd been kidnapped and held hostage in the Colombian jungle for years and years. And there are so many books like this that get published in Colombia, both translated and not. Like my sister used to joke that someone should write a dissertation about kidnapping narratives and the sort of tropes that appear in them. And so what specifically interested me when reading one of these books 
was this sort of throwaway line, this throwaway sentence about this uh, Colombian University professor who'd been held in isolation for many years in the jungle, which in itself is like quite uncommon, like usually you're kept in a camp with other people. Um, so he'd been held in isolation and he was just so bored that he started teaching um, law classes because he was a university like law professor. He started teaching classes to the trees and the rocks. And it was just this one little sentence in the book, but I found it so fascinating. And I guess that was the initial genesis of the story to me to just try to imagine what it would be like to be someone in that situation because out of all the books I read, boredom just seemed to be the most common trope of just trying to figure out what to do with your time. Like, how do you keep your mind occupied when you were literally just given no reading material, you have no schedule? Um, I got like really fascinated for a long time in, in captivity narratives. And I see why you've used Hamlet, because in, it would be the text that he remembers, of course. Um, it's also a text that is so laden with meaning um, and is such an ur text for a lot of the books that we read. So were you nervous about using a text like that? And what, what did you want people to take out of all of those textual references? Um, I guess the reason I used Hamlet is because Hamlet is just one of my favorite texts ever written. And so to me, it really became a key to writing the character, of just having the character write about things that I felt really passionate and really interested about. Um, because I sort of struggled with writing this story for a long time, of trying to figure out like who, to, like, who was this character. It took me a long time to figure out who he was. So I think once I figured out that he was American and that he taught Western literature to um, middle school students, that really became the key of unlocking the character to me. So I don't think I felt nervous about it. I think to me, it was just really fun getting to write those passages. Like there's another part where he goes on this long rant about the alien movies, which again was just the genesis of me getting really obsessed with them. So, yeah. It's also a wonderful um, reality about the way works of art work, to mm -hmm. think that there's someone reciting Hamlet in the Colombian jungle, like mm -hmm. as if Shakespeare would ever have imagined <laughs> yeah and I think there's something sort of like apocalyptic about it too um, yeah absolutely like that was a comment that someone else made to me about the story that you have this person who's sort of like holding on to these fragments that do they mean anything is he sort of deluding himself is he seeking refuge in this illusion that's sort of blinding him from the reality of what's going on around him yeah did you set out um with any kind of political idea in your mind when you were writing the story? What do you mean by political? Well, about kidnapping and the FARC and things like that. It's, you know, it's obviously something that is very interesting to readers who don't know necessarily very much about Colombia beyond those stories that hit the you know, headlines every now and again. Um, but you, you know, I just wonder if that was in your mind or if the story came to you completely devoid of politics and was mainly about the characterization. Yeah, I mean, I definitely knew I wanted to write a book about someone who'd been kidnapped because that was just something that was very part of my reality growing up in Colombia and of anyone from my generation, if you were to ask them about their memories of the time. Um, you know, a lot of people would know people who had been taken and held hostage. So I definitely knew I wanted to explore that theme in my book. 
but it's also really important to me to have the perspective of one of the kidnappers, of one of the guerrilla, guerrilla soldiers be shared as well. So we get to see her, because um, she's a female soldier, we get to see her side of the story later on in the book, like a story from the perspective of when, when she's a child. Um, and I mean, that was really important to me because there's a lot of people in Colombia, I think, who have a lot of anger, like well-justified anger, how their families have been torn apart, you know, like people who've had fathers or family members like die in captivity, like either killed during rescue attempts or they just die, you know, they're, they're there for 10, 15 years, so they develop heart problems, right? Um, so that's very much a reality that's part of Colombia where people are, are angry. But then I think with trying to negotiate the the peace terms, which has been going on for the past couple of years, you know, I think you reach a certain point where you have to try to understand the other side and like the other perspective, you know, of like how a lot of people who were in the guerrilla were, you know, forcibly recruited as children and it's maybe the only reality that, that they've ever known. So I guess like in terms of politics, um, like that story, I think, the story that I just read, Lemon Pie, is maybe the more like angry side of the the captive story, but then I think there's other stories in the book that try to share other perspectives. Like that was really important to me. So maybe that is political. I wasn't thinking of it as political. I was thinking of more of just trying to make the book feel balanced, I suppose. Well, you succeeded. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think it, that really comes through and it is in, it's important. Um, and it's, it's great to see it from all the different perspectives because as a you know an English woman reading mm -hmm. it it stopped me from feeling voyeuristic you yeah. know it was kind of it took me through the journey which I really appreciated yeah and speaking of getting different perspectives this is a collection of stories but the stories are linked to each other the this character the teacher comes back later um, and lots of the characters recur but as you say all of the stories are written from different perspectives and I wonder if that's one of the reason you wanted to write it as a collection of linked stories and not a novel, for instance. Definitely. I mean, I knew very early on that a linked collection or like a fractured novel, it's been called both terms alternatively. Um, in the States, it's actually being marketed as a novel. Um, so I knew very early on that that was the kind of book I wanted to write, that a book that was sort of broken and like fragmented and like a book that wasn't cohesive because that felt like an authentic representation of Columbia to me. Like I didn't want to write a book that was sort of straightforward or resolved everything or like answered all the questions that readers had about the characters because that doesn't feel honest to me about like Colombian reality. So I guess the form really reflects the story that I was trying to tell, like the story of these people who are broken in like various ways. Um, and then also those are just the kinds of books that I really love to read. Like I really love sort of fragmented books that aren't really story collections, aren't really novels. So it's sort of the cliche where you write the book that you want to read. What Could you give us some examples of books that you oh really love gosh, in this style? so many. Um, I guess one recent one I read that has done quite well here in the UK was Pond by Claire Louise Bennett. I love that. Yeah, we I love talked that about book. it on the show. Yeah. It's fabulous, isn't it? Yeah, because I definitely read that book as a novel. To me, it was one character's journey, which I think is the basic definition 
of a novel. And yet it was marketed everywhere as a short story collection. So I'm glad that I don't work in marketing and publishing because I think <laughs> I would just be terrible at it because I just have no idea you know, how things get to be called what they're called. Um, but, but yeah, I think that like recently that was one really outstanding example that I read. But yeah, yeah. I'm definitely always on the hunt for like... Did you read, um, this came out a few years ago, Jennifer Egan's visit mm. from the Goon Squad? Yeah. Because I thought of that when I was reading yours, not, not just because it was another linked Definitely. Selection. I think that's like one of the most like famous examples, like along with like David Mitchell. Yes. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And one, there's this group of school children that keep coming back from wealthy backgrounds. They're at an international school in, in Cali. Um, and... I was, I, I know you talk about having the perspectives of the kidnappers and some people in the paramilitary groups, and we get one story is from the perspective of a maid, but these characters seem at the center of this story, really, and many of the stories we hear are theirs. So is there a reason why you wanted these girls' stories to be the stories that you came back to again and again? Um, I mean, that was another element of the book that I think arose, like, quite late. And um, I think, like, a big reason of why that group of girls emerged as quite central was early drafts of the books, the characters didn't have any names. So it was causing a lot of confusion in my readers or in my editor's head because people kept asking me questions like, oh, is this girl the same as that girl? Or no, that girl is like friends. Like it was making people very confused. And my intention early on was I wanted to emphasize how the girls were all sort of like parallel universe, like mirror images of each other, right? Sort of showing the different paths that similar lives can take. But ultimately it just became like, easier for the reader if the characters had names. I know that sounds like so simple, just like, but at the time, like I felt really strongly about it. And now that I've done it, I'm like, oh yeah, that just solved like so many problems. I mean, to me, it was like a good lesson, like as a writer to just be really flexible and like be open to other people's reactions and like not be dogmatic. Um, but yeah, I think that was really key in helping me figure out like what the journey of the book was by having that kind of friendship be be at the heart of it I suppose it's also a great way of making it relatable to everybody right because there are lots of people who maybe don't identify with the experiences of kidnap or things that are very specific to you know the political unrest in Colombia mm -hmm. but most of us have been a schoolgirl, yeah and had those friendships I, I mean I really enjoyed the, the opening story mm. which is very much about that kind mm -hmm. of you're in the character's very teenage world internally and then her external world starts to kind of fall apart. And the way that her um, consciousness of what's going on grows is something that, yeah, I could relate to in a completely different context, but that experience of the feelings was really Yeah, universal. I think there's definitely like a journey through the book of where you begin with this character who's really like not aware of her surroundings and hasn't really spent much time thinking about anything other than herself. And I think by the end, you've arrived with like a character who is taking steps towards like acquiring that empathy and that like consideration. Yeah, definitely. 
So you, you mentioned earlier that you grew up in Colombia, um, in, in Cali, where mm -hmm. a lot of these stories are set. And um, I'm trying to phrase this question in a way that isn't how much of your life is in these stories, because I hate that question. But I'm interested, I suppose, in the threat that these paramilitary groups and FARC and, and lots of other sort of guerrilla groups in the jungle pose to you in your life. Because one of the things I noticed about every single one of these stories was this underlying sense of danger, um, even in the most mundane situations. And it was one of the things that I really loved about this and felt unique to me. Um, and I wanted to know how much of your own experiences in that feeling. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, I've lived away from Colombia for such a long time that sometimes I sort of forget almost. But a few years ago, I went to this wedding um, like one of my high school friends from Colombia was getting married. It was really crazy just when we started sharing stories where we would say things like, oh, like, do you remember hearing the helicopters? Like, do you remember just being like afraid that someone was going to come into your house and take you? And that really sort of hit home for me again of like, wow, like, it was just a really crazy time, I suppose. I mean, I didn't ride on a bus until I was 18. I was never allowed to go anywhere without saying where I was going um, because my parents are, um, you know, they were expats living in Colombia, so as foreigners, there was maybe like more of a threat. Um, but I mean, like in terms of like danger, like I was living in sort of, you know, like a middle class neighborhood, like I went to like an international school, I would say that the biggest threats to Colombians comes in like the rural areas, like those are the people who are sort of like the most directly affected. Um, but like when I was growing up, it's, it's so hard to articulate now because, you know, I find myself asking did, was it just not talked about or was I just not paying attention? Because when you're like 13, you're sort of thinking about your friends or this drama at school, you might not be, you know, maybe I just like wasn't self-aware or maybe other people wasn't talk, weren't talking about it. But I definitely feel like when I moved away from Colombia and I started reading about it, um, you know, to me, it's like still like a shock to sometimes hear people like talk about the paramilitaries in like a positive way of like, oh, yeah, they're doing like a good thing for Colombia, like wiping out these like leftist sympathizers. It's almost as though like imagine if you supported Bernie Sanders in the U.S. and if that was like basically a danger to your life. Right. It's crazy. But that's basically what, you know, is is arguably the the comparison. Um, so I feel like I've gone on a bit of a rant. <laughs> no, please, that's, we love but, those. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, in rants. Yeah. yeah, I think like when, when you live abroad, like, I mean, I was just thinking this, this last night when I was walking around the park in my house, you know, and I had like my iPhone out and I was just like, it's kind of cool that I get to do this. And that's true like for like every city, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to say that like Colombia is like more dangerous than... You know, I mean, I had a friend who got mugged in like Brixton like three weeks ago. You know, it's like crime can happen anywhere. Um, but I guess like the particular threat um, of Colombia in like the 80s and 90s, like the thing that I guess was sort of this underlying dread in like people's stomachs was just this feeling that sort of like anything could happen like at any time, you know, of like, oh, wow, like so and so didn't come to school because his parents were threatened. So like he's now moved to like Philadelphia, 
you know so just things like that I suppose yeah and the threat of the disappearance you know yeah because it's it's so unanswerable Mm -hmm. and that I think you really captured that sense in the first story without I don't want to ruin the the, Mm -hmm. the first chapter if we call it that um but that sense of just the the bottom of someone's reality falling out Mm -hmm. with absolutely no answer and you know for British readers I mean God knows Britain has had its own story of political complication, but it's never on that kind of a level. Mm-hmm. Whereas obviously there are people from other Latin American countries or even from Spain with its old dictatorship who I think would relate in a different way. Um, but I found it particularly, like, it was interesting you make the Bernie Sanders connection because mm-hmm. I was thinking as I was reading it about obviously, you know, Donald Trump and like the us leaving the EU and mm-hmm. because this is a show about immigration that we're... You know, I was thinking about that a lot. Um, and I wanted to ask you, because you went to study in the States when mm-hmm. you were 18, um, your experience of being an immigrant um, or an expat, or mm-hmm. if you would you differentiate between the two? You know, do you feel more like an expatriate than an immigrant being in, in the States? I mean, I have no idea <laughs> what I am. I was just thinking about this the, the other day. Um, I mean, I was talking about this with with my sister because I've been getting emails from different Colombian publications sort of like inviting me um, to different things. And I've always had to say like, oh, like I'm not actually Colombian. Like I grew up there, but I don't have the Colombian passport. Like I don't have Colombian citizenship. Like when I go back there, it's on a tourist visa. But then, like, if someone were to ask me, like, where are you from? I would say I'm from Colombia. Like, that's where I grew up. Like, that's where I miss, you know? Um, And I think, like, when I moved to the States, because I'd gone to, like, an American school and, like, my father's American and my mother's English, um, I think I definitely had the expectation that I would just sort of fit in and everything would feel natural. But... But I didn't, you know, I didn't feel American. So I don't feel like English, even though I have a UK passport. I don't feel American when I'm there, even though I can obviously like blend in due to my accent. Um, And Colombia is where I feel most comfortable, but I'm not Colombian. So it's just sort of like very interesting, you know. Um, I mean, my sister was saying like, well, what is a Colombian writer? Like Gabriel Garcia Marquez like spent most of his writing life in Mexico City. You know, like James Joyce is the Irish writer, but he did most of his writing in Paris, right? So it seems like people's lives are like more complicated than like a strict term will like allow you to be like, oh, so-and-so is like a Colombian or like Mm -hmm. an American writer. And a lot of your stories in this collection are obliquely about that, I think, Mm -hmm. about the experience of not feeling at home in a place, whether it's in your own country or in a different country. And that was one of the reasons we wanted to do a show about immigration based Mm -hmm. upon this book, because I felt that theme coming up over and over and over again. Yeah, definitely. It's um, a very personal theme to me, like displacement. And there's one story in the collection, like the piece that was published in The New Yorker, Honey Bunny, where like that story was inspired by me. Um, I was in LA for like New Year's and I met um, these girls where in advance I'd been told like, oh, we're gonna go hang out with like my friends. They're from like Mexico and El Salvador and like Guatemala. And I was really excited because, you know, I don't often get to speak Spanish that much anymore. So I was like really excited about the chance to meet people to speak Spanish. Um, But none of them could, like they were, you know, they. I was better at Spanish than them, and I'm like 
this white girl, you know? So, um, and then also when I was working in the elementary schools um, in Portland, Oregon, I had a lot of students who, you know, spoke English fluently and couldn't speak Spanish. And for their parents, it was like the opposite. Like their parents spoke Spanish, but no English. And like they made it work, like they were able to communicate. But I think that's really difficult for people because you don't really feel at home in one, you know, country or another. Um, you know, and like I haven't exactly had like the same like experience, but um, I guess like emotionally it was like one that I wanted to like imagine, like that kind of displacement. Yeah, and it's complicated when it splits generations in families, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's like the when the parents feel more connected to one culture and the children feel connected to another, or, you know, I assume your mother's mm -hmm. English that she has an English accent and you have an American she accent. She does, and I love introducing her to my friends because then I can say, like, now you'll see that I'm really English. Like, I'm more <laughs> English than I am anything else, you know? Like, my genes are 50% English. It's crazy. Yeah. Okay, and one final question for you. What would you hope that... a uh, American or British reader would come out of this collection thinking about Columbia? Were you hoping to displace any sort of assumptions that people make about the culture? That's a really good question. Um, I guess one thing I would hope is that people would not just think like narcos when they think of Columbia. Um, I mean, I know that that kind of story of like, the drug cartel and like the narco tale is very much a part of like Colombian society. But I guess with this book, I wanted to show that there were other stories too, you know, of just like ordinary teenagers or just people living their lives. Um, so, I mean, there are like, there is like a story about like the drug culture in my collection, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that I wrote a book that wasn't just sort of like a narco thriller. I suppose. So am I. <laughs> yeah, I think we all I are mean, glad. That would be fun. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Um, but, but yeah, I guess that, that's one thing I would hope. And I would hope that, I mean, I would hope people would want to go there. I would hope that people would want to get to know it better. You know, I think it's, just the most wonderful place. I'm biased, <laughs> but I think everyone should go. Do you go often? I was last there two years ago in 2015. I went to the Medellin Book Fair because I was invited to speak on a panel. So that was super fun. And I'm hoping to go this summer to do research for my next book. That sounds so, exciting. Great. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, we will anticipate it with much excitement. Um, Julian thank Pacheco, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for Friction. having me. I've had so much fun. Great. <laughs> <laughs> So that was Julian Pacheco, um, who is writing about a lot of things, including Colombia and America, but also immigration. So the theme of our show today is immigration. Um, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about immigration, which will not come as a surprise to our regular listeners, um, is that the state of the world today is making it very, very, very difficult to be an immigrant, especially if um, you're a refugee or something Especially like if that. your skin is not white, basically. Yes, I think that's a much better way to say it. 
Um, and so our politics on this matter are pretty clear, not least because I think we both think of ourselves in, in some sense as immigrants, even though I hesitate to put myself in the same category as the people who are coming from war-torn zones like Syria and things like that. But obviously I'm American, I live in the UK, you've lived in, in France and Britain, all of those things. Um, and so we wanted to celebrate immigration in literature because so much of the great literature written in every language is not only by immigrants, but about immigration. So um, what do you think, first of all, I think it's worth talking about what we mean by immigrant, don't you think? Absolutely, because I was thinking about the difference between the word immigrant and the word expatriate. And, you know, white people tend to be expats. <laughs> um, and immigrant is a term that has a lot of negative connotations because of the way it's bandied about by right-wing press. Um, and, you know, the difference, is, the difference is, I think, permanence. You know, the expat is someone who goes to live in a different country for a few years, returning to their place of origin. The kind of energy around it is one of great privilege, that you can pick where you want to go. You can go to one of the old colonial countries, and then you can come home. Um, whereas immigration, immigrant, is a word that has a more permanent sense, that you are abandoning your home country for a different life, maybe a, a better one. Um, and I think that, like you said, it's really important to make the difference the distinction between you know you as an American immigrant in England where you know your your, your country of origin is one that you re you return to and your family's still there and you have access to them and you want to go back and see them and you know um, as opposed to people who are fleeing political unrest although my god I mean <laughs> with the political situation in yeah. the states at the moment you know yeah although it's not quite crumbling yet I'm sorry I think it is. So, okay. <laughs> so, yes. no, 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 I'm being a dick. No, you're it's right. Not. But yes, and you bring up a very important point, which is that um, people with privilege, again, are allowed to use words that people who aren't privileged can't. Um, and, and maybe that's a problem. I, th I, I think, though I use the word expat, I think it's very problematic because of that very reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's put that to one side and talk about <laughs> books written by immigrants. Because when I started doing research for the show, it is amazing how many wonderful, wonderful books, in the English language particularly, are written by people who English wasn't even their first language. I mean, there are some very famous examples. Joseph Conrad, of course, who was Polish. Um, English was like his third language or something like Phenomenal. that, which is amazing, somebody who had such great command of the English language. Yeah, and his books are linguistically complicated. Yes, and he famously loved the English language partially because of... Uh, the complications of English um, and the amount of words that are available to the writer. Um, but Nabokov as well was um, a refugee from Russia. Um, and, you know, I don't know, so many others. We made a list. Um. We did. Kazuo Ishiguro, who's, yeah. who I really, I love his writing. Hanif Qureshi is one of my mm -hmm. faves as well. Um, and Khaled Hossaini, who is from Afghanistan, France, and New York. So many multiple narratives, immigration narratives crossing over. Yeah, there's also, um, you know, Jim Blahiri, Jamaica Kincaid, Edward Standicat. I mean, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? Does, it? it does, it does, it um, does. And I think many people have made the argument that it's sometimes immigrants who can understand a culture or society better than the people who live there can. I don't. I don't know if that can ever be proven or not. But you know, de Tocqueville famously wrote the seminal text on 
what America is and why it is that way. And I think, you know, Nabokov and Lolita wrote arguably what is one of the great American novels. Yeah, well, you, you, you have a totally different perspective because you haven't been indoctrinated from childhood in a national narrative. So in some ways you can see things and places for how they really are in that present moment because you don't necessarily come with the uh, absorbed history of a, of a nation and a nationality. Um, you, you get this amazing outsider's perspective. When I've lived, I've lived in France and Spain, um, two countries that I would never have thought would be that foreign to me because we were all in, in Europe. And yet, when you live in a country and work especially, when I was in Spain I was studying, but when I was in Paris I was working, you get such a different, um, you have such a different relationship to the culture actually. And the interesting thing is, how you negotiate the language barrier as well. Um, and like you were saying, you know, for people like Joseph Conrad and, and, and Nabokov, choosing to write in a language that is not the one that would be connected directly to their unconscious, that's like a fascinating thing. But obviously, of course, the reason that people write in English is not, it's not just artistic decision, it's commercial decision. It's also to do with, you know, reaching a, a wider audience as well. Mm. Um, uh, there's a famous example recently of Jhumpa Lahiri who moved to Rome to learn the Italian language and is now writing in Italian. Well, this is what I was about to say. It's much harder to find writers who are of English or, I mean, not that they are, but of English or American origin who are writing in second languages. Much, much harder. Mm. I couldn't think of anyone, actually. Well, English, unfortunately, is the sort of dominant cultural language. Um, and you see that working in the book industry uh, yeah. even uh, there are many more english books translated into foreign languages than the other way around than the other way around Ugh. i know gross it is gross. but i do love i love english so. you <laughs> do <laughs> no, maybe I, we should cut that out no we're not cutting that out i, love I don't it even speak any other languages i just love it anyway um <laughs> <laughs> i love my cultural dominance it's so awesome that's not what i mean i know i know um well well i have been thinking about the u.s in in this example and i think it might be because a lot of my education um, about books was about American books. So I was thinking a lot more about American books. But this does seem to be a common theme that crops up in American literature over and over and over. Um, and I think that's partially because America, even though obviously there are a lot of problems with this narrative and it's a narrative that's trying, that the current administration especially is trying to erase, is um, immigration. Is, is a huge way that Americans define themselves. And, and America was founded by immigrants and um, you know, built by immigrants from all over the world, um, various different waves. I think it's also because Americans, as we've talked about on the show before, are, are obsessed with defining themselves. And the novel becomes a medium for that. And the immigration novel, in a way, is a very easy way to talk about what America is and what it means. Um, and what somebody from another culture might feel coming into it, being both a part of and not a part of America. So, you know, um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie wrote Americana, which is about this very thing. Um, uh, the Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. Um, so many, Michael Chabon's The uh, um, Cavalier and Clay. Those are all novels about immigrants. Um, which are saying something much larger about America. Yeah, whereas in the context of the British novel, it tends to be to do with our violent and murky colonial past, you know, and the, the immigration narratives that you get, like 
the Buddha of suburbia, um, and I can't remember the name of the author who wrote that. Hannah Kirsch. It is Hannah Kirsch, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, obviously Zadie Smith, who I'm going to talk about a bit later, so I'm not going to dwell on her. Um, Monica Ali, who wrote Brick Lane. You know, it's it's a different it's a different yeah. narrative. The British immigrant narrative. Yeah, that colonial narrative. heritage. It's often people from those countries coming to Britain. Um, yeah. And that that the past of aggression. Um, coming back and yeah and also responsibility they tend to be a, a lot of narratives about responsibility like all right Britain you know you you went you raped you pillaged you you created this empire for yourself and then you abandoned your outposts and then you get angry when the when generations pass and people come looking for a life here I mean it's very complicated yeah that's not to say America doesn't have its own um, imperialistic tendencies oh God. so Hell I think no no yeah. they, they, they take a different shape though Yes, um, we all have blood on our hands is, yeah. is the message of that. Um, and, you know, immigration novels are so often about being, I think this is very true of The Lucky Ones, Julian Pacheco's novel, about not really being of one place or the other. Um, and it's a really convenient way to explore identity. Um, it's not just about uh, huge, broad, sweeping cultural narratives. It's about a very personal connection to place and home. Yeah, absolutely. And and often the split uh, between generations. I mean, I really enjoyed Colm Toybin's book, Brooklyn, about um, Irish Irish set settlers going from, from Dublin to Brooklyn in New York. And it, it, it's the story spans several generations. And you see that evolution of concepts of identity um, across across the age. You know, you, you kind of watch the development or you... you yeah, you're present for the development of a new way of living that is tied to geography, mm. you know, which is great. I came out of researching this show realizing that I just love novels about immigrants. <laughs> All of what, my favorite. What do you think that says about you, sweetheart? I don't know. I just, I just can't get enough of them. What does it mean about me? I suppose I, I'm somebody who's moved cultures, so That's I it. You relate identify to it. with it. Yeah, I, I think suppose. So. But even before I decided to move to Britain, I've always loved novels about immigrants, especially coming to America. I think I'm obsessed with America, basically, but like in a sort of lefty, guilty kind of way. <laughs> this, is like, this is my <laughs> way of say, atoning. But, but everyone carries sitting here wearing a Make, a, Make America Great Again yes. baseball cap. I should <laughs> no, just let you know. No. <laughs> Don't even joke. Um, okay, but let's talk about our favorite immigration novels. So Octavia, do you want to start? Yes, mine is a big humdinger of a, of a famous one, White Teeth by Zadie Smith, which mm. was, of course, her first novel. And um, Zadie Forever. Zadie Forever, totally. She's she's the biz. Um, and I was 14 when it came out. And I remember it was this big, It was there was a lot of hype around it um, because it was in 2000 where there really weren't very many, it, there weren't nearly as many um, alternative narratives to kind of the white British whatever or the white American whatever being published, I think. I feel like now the the world of publishing is quite a lot more diverse than it was then. And Still uh, a long way to go, I must oh, throw that in. Yes, without doubt. Um, but I think I, it really appealed to me because it was set in London where I grew up um, and it was full of places and full of characters that I recognized, although not from my life because I grew up in a you know white middle-class family who were very comfortable financially and all that kind of stuff um, in West London. And the book is set in kind of North London and it's, it, it does what I was talking about before, where it straddles different generations of these two families. I mean, probably the majority of our listeners have read it, and if you haven't, you really bloody should. Um, but it's a, 
it's just a it's a phenomenal book because she she really captures the sense of a melting pot that that is provided by big metropolis and the fact that the thing that throws the two patriarchs of these two families um, together is the Second World War. So she really brings together the fact that, you know, Britain really called on its colonial partners and, you know, didn't then help them out. Um, but it's funny, it, I, I read it again quite recently, actually, and it stands up now because so much of what she is exploring with the, the children, the younger generation, to do with radicalization, to do with feeling socially marginalized, is so, so relevant now, still. Um, because I think also, in essence, we haven't come very far since 2000, frankly, like shamefully, um, in terms of the divides that exist within London culture between different races and different social milieu. Um, <laughs> milieu, God, who the fuck am I? Anyway, um, I also think the way that she brings in this other family called the Chalfins, who, is, who are this kind of lefty intellectual white family, the satire is so biting and it's so relevant and it's so true and it, it the shame of that um and if you haven't read the book i don't i don't want to give too much away in case people haven't but it's it's like deeply deeply uncomfortable because it's so on the money um but yeah i i, I think it's brilliant and i think it's yeah it's important it's an important text yes. i mean i don't know what they study on GCSE syllabi, but I would hope it would be white. Only to kill a mockingbird, is <laughs> only to kill <laughs> from what I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I completely agree. I mean, white teeth. I I read it um, in my twenties um, and hadn't. It wasn't as important a text in America, although of course Zadie Smith was very popular there. But it, it yeah, I think she completely gets the way that people spank spank. <laughs> She completely understands the way that people speak to yeah. each other yeah. um, and the specificity of that. And she understands London, the beating heart of London and the separate neighborhoods and the separate worlds and the way they interact. It's, it's a wonderful novel. Um, so I'm also gonna mention quite a well-known novel that I've probably mentioned many times, possibly a gazillion times on the show before, but I'm just gonna, it is my favorite, so I'm gonna mention it anyway. Um, so it is The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz. Um, it's exuberant, it's playful, funny, sad novel starring Oscar Wow. Um, he's a fat, comic-obsessed Dominican teenager growing up in suburban New Jersey. Um, but of course, it's not just about Oscar Wow. It's about the history of the Dominican Republic. It's about immigration. Um, it's about the immigrant experience. It's about the power of stories. Um, it's about authenticity. What I really like about it is that Diaz isn't, he's very, he's very inventive with his language. He's not afraid to use slang and Spanish throughout. Um, it's this wonderful combination of the high and the low. Um, and the prose is totally expansive, but it also feels really controlled. Um, and he's a famously slow writer. It takes him like 10 years to write a book and he hates writing. Um, <laughs> I saw him speak once and he talked about how painful it was for him and how difficult it was for him, which was actually very reassuring in a way. Yeah, and also you would never guess from reading his prose yes, exactly. because it's masterful. But that's the thing, it's so worked over. and um, That's fascinating. And yeah, really stressed over. Um, Sorry, but yes, thank you, Juno, for working so hard for us. Thank you for, for being so honest. Yeah, also. but it's it's a wonderful book, um, and I read it about ten years ago. I actually think I should reread it because I don't really remember what happens. I just have this impression of how wonderful it is, um, but I would really recommend it. Thanks. So we'll be back in a second with our recommendations with Julian Pacheco. 
I'm Carrie Plitt. This is Literary Friction with Octavia Bright and back with Julian Pacheco. So we're going to be giving our book recommendations. Octavia, do you want to start? Always. Um, I'm cheating this month because I haven't actually read anything for about four weeks because I've just been writing my epic masterwork. <laughs> uh, I'm, I am joking about that. I mean, I have been writing it. It's not an epic masterwork. Anyway, I have now finished um, and I've got this amazing pile of books waiting for me at home that I've been desperate to crack open for a really long time. Um, and on the top of it is a book uh, called Deleuze and Guattari Intersecting Lives. It's a non-fiction um, biography and I'm a big fan of these guys. Sounds like a real beach read, Octavia. Oh, you know how I like to treat myself. <laughs> you just finish academic work and go straight into more... I mean, it's all, it's all I know. Academic stuff. Yeah. But yes, sorry, go on. Well, the, the thing about this book, so Deleuze and Guattari are theorists to it who I really love. Um, and I've never really thought about who they were as people. I just read their theory and I use it in my work. Um, and this book's come out, and it sounds absolutely fascinating, fascinating even. I mean, Deleuze was a dick, I think, like a genuine bona fide dick, but Guattari sounds like this awesome guy. Um, and one of the stories that the, the author, Francois Dossier, uh, goes into is this fascinating place called La Borde, which was a psychiatric clinic that Guattari worked at as an analyst. Um, and it was like a socialist utopia where the doctors and the patients, they weren't called patients, they were called guests, I think. And everyone had to muck in. So there was no hierarchy. The only hierarchy that existed was medical knowledge, basically. So obviously they wouldn't have the patients treating one another. And then this guy came um, and checked in who was a circus performer. And they ended up devising this way of treating mental illness that involved circus performance and... Um, zero hierarchy and it just sounds like this madhouse amazing madhouse it's still open it's still going and it's still a socialist set up in france so i can't wait to read it read about it because i i kind of i feel like i could belong there <laughs> <laughs> um so so that's that's my jam but it's a big old it's a big old book um for sure so i'll probably still be reading it next month yeah. i used to lose in guitari often when i was writing sort of dissertations in college but i cannot remember a single thing that they said i know it's like post-structuralist but that's all bodies without organs yeah i don't know lines of flight i don't nothing no <laughs> nothing no it's, Ca- it's we're gonna all, have words about this later. it's all come away for me um but anyway that sounds great i probably won't be reading it but <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great enjoy, go fuck yourself. <laughs> enjoy you can just tell me about the the circus i will place. i will i will okay um julianne what have you brought in for us today Oh, my book's quite different. It's a little skinnier, I think. Um, And it's a bit cheeky because it hasn't actually been published yet. I have like an advanced, uncorrected proof. Exclusive. um, mm -hmm, That was given to by my publishers. But I've been enjoying it so much that I guess this is maybe sort of an advanced recommendation. Mm. Um, I actually have no idea when it's going to be published, but I'm sure people can just find out on the internet. If it's an an advanced proof, it will be in the next six months. Um, and it's a new short story collection by Akhil Sharma, and it's called A Life of Adventure and Delight. And I was really excited when my publisher gave this to me, because we're both published by the same um, company, like Faber, um, because I didn't know that he had another book coming out, because when he wrote his second novel, like Family Life, I believe um, that book appeared 10 years after his first book appeared. So it was really exciting for me to see this Um, new collection come out so quickly considering he had such a long gap before and um, I'm working on finishing my dissertation too so I'm really jealous (laughs) that you've reached the finish line it's okay you will too think of me as like proof that there's light at the end of the tunnel a month ago I was a complete wreck heading to the light Um, (laughs) so 
yeah, so I guess I've been enjoying like really sort of thin books that I can sort of like finish very quickly. Um, and also what I love about short stories is you can kind of like jump around, right? You don't have to like read the book in order. So that's really good when, when you're on the train. And I just love his writing because I feel like he does a really good job of writing characters who I guess are just kind of jerks or maybe like aren't like the greatest of people, but you still really sympathize for them. Like you really feel for them, right? Like he has... Um, quite a few stories about childhood in this book, which I love. And a common trait between these child narrators seems that they are really obsessed with being famous one day. And like one of them, like prays to like Superman and like talks to God about like, oh, like I'm, how am I going to be famous one day? And on like one hand, that's like such kind of a asshole thing. But on the other hand, there's something so appealing about it. Like, I really like it when, when authors really push the reader in that way of like, well, I'm going to write about this character who's a bit of a jerk, but, but then you, you stick with them. Um, and then I also just like really love his sentences. Like he had this one sentence in there where um, it was something like, the market smelled like coriander and wet green things. Mm. And I can just smell that. And it's so broad, you know, it's not that specific, like wet green things, but yeah. it, it's very evocative. So I've really been enjoying it and I really recommend it. It sounds really good. Yeah, that sounds fabulous. Yeah. It's I also got, I don't know if this cover art will stay, but the cover art is really nice. Yeah. It's like mm. a proof has yeah. a beautiful cover. Yeah. Very colorful. Um, okay, well, my recommendation, I'm cheating a little bit as well because we're it's, so bad. I know really. we're recording this the week of the London Book Fair, and I've, you know, it's been rather You're a busy. busy lady. Uh-huh. Uh, but I did just start reading a book that I'm really loving, and I'm going to recommend that. It's called The Autobiography of Red by a Canadian poet named Anne Carson. Have you ever read anything yes, by Anne I Carson? Yes, I love Anne Carson. She is brilliant. Yeah, she's fucking um, great. My friend Kate, who has really great taste, gave this to me for my birthday, I think years ago. And I sort of said, oh, that sounds great. But I never picked it up. Um, and we <laughs> Such a witch. <laughs> no, I mean, people give you gifts all the time. And it takes a long time to read a book. It's a real investment. It wasn't that I didn't want to read it. <laughs> no, I'm, okay. just, I'm trying to make you embarrassed. <laughs> well, I'm very embarrassed now. Thank you very much. Um, I'm sorry, Kate. So, but we moved house recently and um, we had to, of course, take all the books off the shelves and then put them up on the shelves again. So it was really fun to see all these books I had in my collection that I'd never quite picked up. And this was one of them. And I thought, I'll start reading this. And it's just, um, I, I, I am really, really enjoying it. And it is so weird and so wonderful. Um, it was first published in 1998. It's essentially an epic poem um, inspired by the Greek poet Desic. Chorus? Uh, Stegosaurus? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that. About a monster named um, Geryon and his love for Heracles and also his obsession with red. Um, so it's this strange combination of the classical and the modern. Um, it's about love. It's about obsession. It's about sex. It's very sexy. Um, and she's just, she is a poet. I mean, it's it's a long story. So um it reads kind of like a novel, kind of like a poem, um, and it's just totally absorbing and and wonderful. And I'm really, really, really enjoying it, and I would really recommend it. Can I borrow it when you finish? Yes, you may. Thank you. It's a beautiful edition too. It has French flaps, which French I French flaps. Yeah. Do you know what those are? <laughs> no. Okay. It sounds filthy. It's I don't know how to describe it over the air, but it's when the book cover turns into a flap. Oh yes. Okay. Yeah. 
Pond, Pond was like that. Yeah. yeah. It's like fancy paperback. Yeah. Trendy, fancy yes. paperback. Well, it's, it's lovely. Anyway. A French and, and it's a very strange format as well. Um, yeah, okay. We we can, we <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> thank you, Octavia and Julian. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Julian. Um, so that's about all the time we have for today, isn't it? Um, thank you to Julianne and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Um, and Octavia, I think we have a special event to announce coming up, don't we? We do. We absolutely do. We're doing a, a great night with the Blue Stocking Club, which we're really, really excited about. Um, and it's on the 5th of April at the Institute of Light near London Fields. So if you're in town, come. Um, we're going to be discussing the film Henry and June, which is about the relationship between Anais Nin, whose work I've recommended on the show uh, like a million times, and Henry Miller. Um, and then they'll do a screening of the film. And tickets are £10 in advance, and you can buy them at the Institute of Light website. It'll be great. It'll be really fun. So please come and tell your friends. Yes. Um, and in the meantime, you can always download our podcasts or listen to us on ntos.live. Um, you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as we say every week, please do leave us a rating if you like what we do, because it really helps. Uh, we'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>